Season's greetings, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Le Vital Core Salon. I am Kara. I'm your host. I'm your salonnaire, if, if you will. I am here to introduce you to women who are not letting bullshit or burnout slow them down, or not letting it slow them down for long. And we'll talk about that a lot with today's guest, Jennifer Farmer. I just want to check in with all of you. I, I hope you are having an amazing holiday season so far. I know this time of year kind of feels like getting on a bullet train and sort of zooming past Hanukkah and Christmas and Kwanzaa and Boxing Day and all sorts of holidays. Here we are kind of in this little lull before getting our New Year's on. I hope that you are having some nice cozy, relaxing time. This is a time of year where I really try to refine and work on cultivating more hygge or that Danish kind of cozy expression that you've probably seen or maybe you've seen it spelled H-Y-G-G-E and you're like a bunch of people calling it higgy. I don't know. This is the time of year that just feels right to kind of be like with candles and books and tea and cozy time and kind of hunkered in and just really sort of digging some quiet space in between one year ending and another year starting and kind of getting that to hit that do-over button, so to speak. But I, I you know, I'm noodling here and I guess it's... It's just that time of year. It's so nice. And I hope you are really having some of that kind of coziness creep into your life right now and enjoying the season and hopefully some time away from work. Hopefully a lot of you have been able to step back and kind of just have some time and space and reflect and relax and catch up to yourself. I know everyone that I was talking to over the last month or so, it's just like, their lives were moving in fast forward and all the extra sort of holiday to-dos and tasks that fill up our days and nights and weekends and every single moment and obligation. Yeah, I hope you're doing really well. Speaking of tasks, actually, I wanted to remind everyone, I think you've heard me mention it on the show in different ways and different places, but I am on a mission to collect 33,000 handwritten task lists from women. And if any of you listening, follow me on social media, and I sure hope you do. I'm pretty much at VitalCore, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You'll probably see and have seen, you know, me blabbing about different things related to the 33K task list project, but it is rolling along and lists are starting to come in and some are coming in with Christmas cards, which was awesome. I really dug it. It was a great surprise. But I want to remind you, if you are someone who identifies as a woman and has a handwritten original task list that you are willing to contribute to what will be a long-term conversation about balancing obligation versus desire, hopefully being realized into an installation, an artistic installation at some point. Obviously with under a thousand task lists collected right now. It's going to be a little while before that gets realized, but this is something that I am 
throwing a lot of energy and effort into and because it's fun and it's I'm having a blast with this and it's leading to all sorts of opportunities and connections and conversations and ideas. And I just want to remind all of you listening, I would love your task list. And if you have one and you are willing to mail it to me, the address is, you can send it to me, Kara, Kara Vital Core. And the address is P.O. Box 453, and that's in Hurley, H-U-R-L-E-Y, New York, 12443. I would love to see all of your lists flying in instead of flying into your trash and recycling. So please make a note, maybe even add it to your list so you remember. I know I've been talking about coziness and task lists and all this stuff, but I think it fits with the theme of today's show, which is really around having grace with ourselves and setting a sustainable pace for working, which I think Jennifer probably shares some of the same workaholism tendencies that I have as a recovering type A woman, and I'd probably say a recovering workaholic. If given the chance to muscle through something, I will often take it, and it's only with a lot of practice and self-control that I make sure play stays a part of my life and rest and self-care. And, you know, not in just some, like, Pinterest-worthy version, but in this real way. Jennifer and I talk a lot about that, and I want to tell you a little bit about Jennifer so you have some background before we totally dive into the conversation. So Jennifer Farmer is the author, and she's a, a professional communication strategy wonder woman. Her debut book, Extraordinary PR, Ordinary Budget, A Strategic Guide, was released in 2017. So you can get your hands on that, and I will have a link in the show notes for you. And Jennifer is also the Managing Director of Communications for the Pico National Network, and she's going to talk all about the work that they're doing and their mission, which is so important and so cool to me. And she's also the founder of Spotlight PR. And so that's her boutique communications consultancy where she's working with people around strategic communications and counseling them on that, and then also helping them in terms of coaching around their public relations challenges and needs. Jennifer and I are going to start off and talk about work stuff for a little bit, but really, I think this interview is just so generous of her to show up in this really real way. And she shares, you know, when she hit burnout and how she kind of knew it and what tipped her to start taking action and really turning that around. You know, you're not hearing from a coach, you're hearing from a real woman who really had to assess that and do the work and turn her situation around. And from the outside looking in and based on what she was sharing, she does it with this real sense of grace and humanity and realism that I just found so inspiring to listen to. I hope you enjoy this interview with Jennifer as much as I do. So let's jump over to the interview. Voila, Jennifer. Hi, Jennifer. Welcome to Le Vital Core Salon. I'm so happy you're here. 
Thank you for having me, Kara. I'm really happy to talk to you and your listeners today. Yay! Well, I want to start by getting them up to speed on who you are and what you're doing. So for the folks listening that don't know you, I know you're a pretty hardworking woman. And professionally, you are the managing director of communications for the PICO National Network. Maybe we can start there and you can kind of let us know what that is and what that role is. And then maybe you can talk a little bit about what you're doing with your work at Spotlight PR. So PICO National Network is a network of congregations and faith-based groups across the country. And um, the National Network really works on faith-based organizing and really bringing faith to the core of social justice organizing. Part of what I do is I manage a communications team. I provide trainings and coaching for communication staff who work for PICO and then PICO's state-based federations. And really what I'm trying to do is add capacity to the ongoing local organizing work as well as the national work. And adding that capacity really comes in a variety of different ways. Uh, Sometimes it's one-on-one coaching with directors the executive directors of the PICO Federation. Sometimes it's coaching with their staff. Sometimes it's facilitating training. Sometimes it's offering strategic communications advice about how to handle one situation or the other. Uh, sometimes it's helping to, to share template materials that local federations can then customize and make their own. So it it takes on a a variety of different forms. But basically what I'm trying to do is amplify the voice of faith-based leaders who are doing grassroots organizing around social justice and also racial justice issues. Wow. So as I'm listening, all I can think is you must be busy, especially in the past (laughs) year or so. (laughs) Yes, I am incredibly busy. Uh, In fact, Professionally, my schedule tends to fill up two weeks in advance. So, um, so very, very busy. So can you talk about, because I think the more sensory we can make it for people listening, especially because this is a podcast and they're just getting our words. When you're talking about the types of activities and organizing that Pico's doing, can you give some examples of what that looks like? Sure. So, um, so Pico has a number of different campaigns. One of our campaigns, it's called Live Free, L-I-V-E-F-R-E-E. And Live Free is really about addressing gun violence and mass incarceration in many cities across the United States. So in terms of my communications work, I might um, coach someone to prepare them to do a media interview. I might write a press statement for one of our Live Free staff. Sometimes it's taking an opinion column and pitching that to different media outlets with the hopes that they will publish it. Sometimes it's providing trainings that help the staff and organizers become better at their job. So, for instance, in December, I'm bringing in an expert to do a training on spotting fake news, how to handle trolls online, um, how to recognize bots. Those types of trainings are in service of helping people become better at what they do. And so that's that's one piece of work. PICO also has a very robust immigrant justice campaign. And the immigrant justice campaign is really trying to create situations where people who are undocumented 
could live without the threat of being harassed, being profiled, being detained, you know, mothers separated from their children. And part of my job as a communicator is to really tell the stories of people who are impacted by different policies. So in the immigrant justice realm, earlier this year, I had the privilege of working with an undocumented grandfather in New Jersey. And part of what I wanted to do was to really share his story with the media in a humanizing way. And so rather than just saying he was an undocumented immigrant, I set up media calls so that his daughter could be on the call and she could express what her father meant to her and to her children. I set up opportunities for um, this particular undocumented immigrant to tell his own story in his own words. And then I try to create situations where people could see the human, the physical toll that living as an undocumented person has on not only that person, but their family. And so he talked about some of his healthcare challenges as a result of the stress that he experienced, you know, wondering, will today be the day that I'm deported? And so all that is in service of enabling families to stay together. So those are some of the campaigns. We also have a pretty robust political program where we advocate on behalf of policies that really help families to thrive and not merely not merely survive. And so sometimes the leaders of these different campaigns will call me in and say, okay, Jennifer, this policy was just announced on the Hill. How should we respond? And how do we make our voice clear? So most recently, over the past several days, I spent a lot of time thinking about the Roy Moore controversy. And for those of you, probably everyone knows that name by now, but in the event that you don't, Roy Moore is the judge from Alabama who stands accused of sexually assaulting, sexually harassing teenage girls when he was in his 30s. And so part of what we thought about at PICO is as a faith-based organization, what is our responsibility in this moment? And it really is to lift up and to champion the voice of sexual assault survivors. And so for me, that looks like working with different leaders in the organization, weighing in on media stories regarding Roy Moore, and also really articulating what we believe our faith teaches us in terms of this moment and how we should advocate for um, not just repentance, but what it means to come to repentance and it doesn't mean brushing aside accusations. It means owning it and really allowing the voice of sexual abuse survivors to be heard. Wow. The work that you do, Jennifer, is as I'm listening, and I'm listening as a woman who over the years and especially more acutely in the last few years has literally needed to hit the pause button on news media, like even for just, you know, an hour some days, like, okay, I, I can't go out there for this next hour. I've got to like take a few minutes and, and get myself back together and figure out how this news is triggering me. I have to ask, how do you, as someone who has to stay so deeply connected with what's going on, literally probably minute to minute some days, how do you balance that? How do you keep yourself in a place that's being professional and, and getting the work done, but also at the same time, taking care of yourself? I try to start most mornings with a practice, and that really helps to center me. The first thing that I do is I give myself permission to do what I need to do to take care of myself. So one of the practices that I have in the morning is uh, some mornings I will pray. 
I wish I could say that I prayed every single morning, (laughs) but some mornings I will pray. Some mornings after I pray, I will uh, just spend some time sitting quietly and thinking about what I need to do that day, checking in with myself to find out how I'm feeling, reflecting on the day before. And then a lot of times when I am getting ready in the mornings, I will turn on a motivational speaker. I'll turn on someone who has arrived, you know, so to speak, and um, and I'll listen to them. I, I'll, I'll turn on sometimes um, gospel music or praise and worship music, and I'll just have that going in the background. And basically, I do that not just when I'm in the house, but then when I get in the car, I am listening to someone who I respect and admire give a motivational talk. And I'll do that on my way to work, or I'll do that for a good chunk of my morning. And I give myself permission to do that. There are some mornings where I will wake up and I'll have an idea of something that I want to write. Or, you know, maybe I know that I have to write something over the course of the week and I've been struggling with, okay, well, what's my lead? How do I open the story? And if I wake up and I have an idea at that time, I give myself 30 minutes to just write it down. So the the best way to answer that question is I try to give myself permission to do what it is that I need to do. And on the mornings when I'm really, really exhausted and I'm, I'm rushing and I don't have time to go through my entire practice, I give myself grace for that, too. You know, um, so let's say it's a morning where I don't have time to listen to a 30 minute motivational talk. I think about it and I acknowledge it and I say, well, that's OK you know, that's okay. You know, maybe today you needed to sleep a little bit longer and that's what you needed for today. So I give myself permission. I try to be gentle with myself. The other thing that I do is, you know, you mentioned how difficult it can be to constantly be on the receiving end of news. And in my job, I have to constantly check, stay checked in. After a certain point, if I feel myself and my cup is getting close to the brim, I give myself permission to turn off the TV you know, and so maybe I'm not watching, maybe I'm not watching CNN, or maybe I step away from social media for, you know, just for a little bit of time so that I don't feel so that I have capacity and I have space to do the work that I need to do without becoming discouraged or, or burned out. I want to thank you for sharing that, Jennifer, because I think it's, it's so important in these times for people to hear it. And I think, Especially coming from your world, like you're someone who is probably waist deep or shoulder deep in in organizing and being involved with people who are organizing. And I know for me personally, that's been something I've been exploring and figuring out where to put myself and is that the best use of my skill sets. And I know a lot of the conversations I've had both on this podcast and in the world at large with other women, you know, this notion of like, what's self-care and giving yourself permission gracefully to take a time out and what's privilege and sort of taking advantage of privilege and like, you know, how dare you sit down for an hour and, and think about yourself when there's so much work to be done. Right. So I think Definitely. you sharing this is really important. And it, I'm going to, I don't know what the question is exactly. I mean, do you have any other thoughts on that? You know, when I was coming up and I was just starting my career, I worked in politics and there was a culture that I observed in politics where people would stay late. And if you weren't staying late, 
and maybe this was my, maybe I'm projecting what I thought other people were, were thinking, but if you weren't staying late, I felt like people would judge you. And after working and working and, and coming very close to the brink of being burnt out and then actually going through burnout, I decided, and I would encourage, you know, listeners to, you have to put yourself first. And that means that um, that you have to give yourself permission to do what it is that you need to do to take care of yourself. My pace of work may not be your pace of work, Kara, and I have to be okay with that. So just because I see you working in a certain way, I can't say, okay, well, I have to meet, I have to match what Kara is doing. The best thing that I can do is to work at a pace that is comfortable as well as sustainable for me. So when I hire staff, I, I tell them, you have to be careful that you don't set unrealistic an unrealistic precedent for other people. And what I mean by that is if, if um, I, I had a, a woman on my team and someone sent her a request at 9.30 at night and she responded to that. It was 9.30 on a Friday night. She responded to the email and then she texted me. And so when I spoke with her, I said, okay, even though you got that at 9.30, part of what you have to do is check in to say, does this have to be responded to right now or can I wait until Monday? And even if you know the answer, you have to make a judgment call because if you respond to it at 9.30 and it's something that could wait, you're really conditioning people that that is the way that you're going to respond. And that may be a practice that you're comfortable with in the moment, but that may not be a practice that you want to set long term. And that's something that, um, you know, even as I say it I, to you and, and to all the folks who are listening, it's something that I still struggle with. But I'm mindful of the need to be very, very careful in terms of the precedent and the expectations that I'm setting for other people. So the some the biggest thing that I can say is you have to work at your own pace and not just your own pace, but a pace that is sustainable over the long haul. Because that's really what we want to do. I'm in my line of work, and my line of work is uh, communications in pursuit of mission-driven organizations because I care about these issues. And I want to be able to contribute over the long haul. Not, I don't want to just have a good run for one year or, or two years. I want to contribute over the long haul. And because of that, I need to think of my work as being a marathon and not a sprint. And so sometimes I have to remind myself, Jennifer, this is a marathon. It's not a sprint. The other thing that I have to remind myself and I remind other people is if you look at the way that eagles travel, eagles travel, there's one person at the at the very top and then and then it's almost like a V shape. Right. And then that person at the very top or that that ego at the very top, they stay at the top for a while and then they fall back and someone else comes up to to the very front. When I think about the work that we do and our teams, I think that's a model that we might want to replicate because everyone gets tired. Everyone needs time where they can go at a slower pace. Everyone needs time to to regroup and to refresh. So just because you're a leader of a team or a leader of a project doesn't mean that you have to maintain that pace for every single project. The metaphor of the eagle flight pattern is so fantastic to me. Like the fact that it's being the leader is not about being in front and being the pace setter and pulling everyone along all the time, but it's this natural like, okay, the secular, like I've got to fade back, someone else has got to step up for a little bit and then it kind of keeps moving around. Yeah. That is brilliant. Thank you. It's not mine, but it's one that I that I use from time to time. <laughs> well, you use it well. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. 
And Jennifer, maybe you can share a little bit about, I know you mentioned that you got your start in politics. What did that look like? And how did you kind of get from there to where you are now? Sure. So when I was in college, I studied political science and English. And I remember being in school and people saying, I went to an engineering, I went to the University of Rochester and the University of Rochester is really big on engineering and the sciences, not so much on uh, liberal arts, but you know, here, here, there I was, so to speak. And so I remember people saying, well, Jennifer, if you, if you go into politics, you're never gonna make any money. And I went to my dean and said, you know, look, this is what I've been told. And he said, Jennifer, you do what you love and the money will follow. And that has been my story. So the way that I started in politics is I started as an intern for the New York State Assembly when I was in Rochester. Because I had that experience, I then went on and one summer I went home to Ohio and I was a page. And a page is um, not exactly an intern, but it's someone who runs errands for the legislator. It's And I mean, I have all kinds of stories about that and I'll, maybe we'll get into it later. But I, I'm I sure there's some good ones. Yeah, I worked as a page and that was really exciting and I was meeting people. So when I graduated from college, initially I couldn't find a job in my field. And then maybe a year later, I was in the grocery store with my nine month old son. I ran into someone who I first met as a page. He asked me what I was doing. I said, I'm working in recruiting. And he said, well, there are openings. Why do you want to work in your field? And I said, absolutely. And so I was basically hired maybe a month later in the Ohio House of Representatives. I did that for a while. Then I moved over to the Ohio Senate and the work was great. I was meeting people. My only complaint was I was making very little money and I was a single mom and really was not able to meet my daily obligations or my monthly obligations financially. And what I thought about is the senator who I worked for, Mark Mallory, who later went on to become the mayor of Cincinnati, he would always compliment me on my writing and my communication skills. And so I thought, well, maybe I can go into communications. And, you know, eventually I found a job in communications and really have been in communications ever since. But the seed was planted with Senator Mallory, basically his encouraging what he saw in me in terms of my communication skills. This is amazing because there's so many questions I have for you right now. Sometimes I get log jammed (laughs) when I'm talking to women because their stories are so fascinating. So I know one thing that comes up for this tribe is often, and, and the clients that I work with, they're often in a period of transition or headed towards one. You know, like when you feel that internal pull, that energy, like something's going to have to change here, but you don't know what and you can't figure it out. And I, I want to ask you something. I know you kind of dropped it really quickly and sort of moved on. You were having trouble finding a job in your chosen field of study. And so you took this yes. job in recruiting. Yes. I've heard on the other side in the private conversations, women just really struggling with, I'm in the wrong job. I know this is not where I need to be. I need to do it for the money. I'm figuring out those next steps. Like what kept you going in that moment? I mean, it was bigger than a moment, but what kept you going and what allowed you to keep heading towards that transition? I think what kept me going in the moment was just thinking, 
even though this is not where I want to be, this is an opportunity to learn something. So what can I learn? What can I learn while I'm here? And recruiting, you meet people, you interview people, you try to make the best judgment that you can about whether or not they're going to be a good fit. And so I knew I knew that I was learning something, even though I was not in, in my chosen field. But the fact that I was learning something, that I was meeting people, that kept me going. And the other thing that kept me going, quite honestly, was just having somewhat of a discontentment in my spirit. And that was because I was not doing what I wanted to do. I was appreciative of the opportunity. I was appreciative of what I was learning, but I knew that that was not the, the end of the end of the road. There've been other times in my career when I've been in very difficult situations in terms of the environment that I was working in, or perhaps the person who I was working for. And, and when I would get frustrated, I would ask myself, Jennifer, what are you supposed to learn right now from this experience, from these interactions? And when I was able to put the focus on what I was supposed to learn, it really, really helped in terms of, of being able to stay there and being able to perform well. So I try to ask myself, okay, what's the lesson? What am I supposed to learn? And then what can this place give me? And so, for instance, there are a lot of companies that offer, per, they have a, a line item in the budget that supports professional development or leadership development. Even when I've been in places where I've not been particularly happy or I felt like, okay, this is not a good alignment, I still try to figure out, okay, what are the advantages of where I am and what can I learn? Is there a class that I want to take? Is there a workshop that I want to attend? Is there a conference that I want to attend? And by putting the focus there versus putting the focus or keeping the focus on what I'm not happy about, it's been able to to help me to to stay present, to do a good job, and also just a firm conviction that I won't be here forever. This is just where I am right now. Which is easy to say in retrospect, right? Like, did you have any practices or any resources that helped you? really remember that lesson like this is not forever because I feel like that's something and especially as I dive more into meditation and and thinking about attachments right like a lot of our stress comes from like I'm here but I want to be over there yeah I can't point to any practices that I had at the time but I I'm someone who I try to have a supportive circle and so, you know, I would talk to friends about it. And sometimes people who were outside of the situation could give me good perspective. Like this whole idea of thinking about, well, what trainings, what, what offerings does this current employer have that may benefit me long term? That came at the recommendation of someone else. You know, I must have been complaining to a mentor and the mentor said, well, what can you learn while you're there? You know, I remember a particular situation where I was a communications director and there was a consultant who was hired to work with me. And the consultant was, I felt, very undermining. And it would really stress me out. I would get really angry and I was really frustrated. And I remember going to one of my allies in the organization and saying, this is happening, you know, and I, I'm, I don't like it and I don't know how to manage it. And she told me something and she said, you know, well, what can you learn from him? And she said, focus on what you can learn, learn that so that you make him obsolete, so that you reduce the organization's need to rely on him. And then once she said that, it's like a light bulb clicked on. And that became my focus is I'm going to learn as much as I can from him so that we no longer need him. Ooh, power move, Jennifer. 
power and move. That, I, that was my goal. So, so that was what I, that's where I placed my foot, my, my energy and, and my focus. So I have to ask, were you able to actually fulfill that? I was. <laughs> I was. Yeah, I was. Damn. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it didn't happen right away, but I would say within, um, I was at this particular employer for four years and after two years, I was able to meet that goal. <laughs> That's amazing. And it's, you know, it's, it's not like you were out there probably with a battle ax, but I think it's just oh. like, let me build my skills in a way that we won't all have to suffer under this guy. Yeah. And I just said, when this mentor she, I mean, that's really what she was. When she said this to me, she worked for the organization and she was in a higher position. But when she said that to me, I said, okay, that makes a lot of sense. There's something that he need that he has that we need. And so why don't I focus on learning as much as I can from him and, uh, and really proving my worth so that, uh, the organization doesn't feel that they, that, that they need to rely on him as much. Wow. Now I told him, of course, that that was my goal, but that from the moment she said it, that became my goal. <laughs> and I imagine that lit a fire under your rump like no other. It yeah, it did. And it, and it allowed me to feel like I had some control over the situation. So rather than being a victim to the situation, I felt like I was empowered because I was on a mission and I knew what I had to do. And I also recognized that there were areas that I needed to grow. Got it. Wow. Powerful stuff. I love this. <laughs> you used the word mentor a few times. Yes. What has mentorship looked like for you? And I guess for people listening, I I feel like sometimes what I hear from women and and let me back up and say this is coming from a place of private conversations that I have with really frazzled, often overachieving type A women but they are feeling really physically and kind of mentally and emotionally burnt out when they come to me. Mm-hmm. And it's like at points in their career, they really like understood mentorship and how to get those relationships going. But what I find in my work a lot of times is women, when they feel burnt like that, when they just are spent often isolate, maybe not forever, but for a bit and kind of just like, I don't, you know, I don't, it's like the injured animal going to like sort of hide in the corner for a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess hearing you talk about mentorship and how powerful it's, it's been for you. I mean, just that moment or hearing how just a conversation with Senator Mallory kind of probably shifted your thinking as well. What advice would you have for women who are just like, I know I need a mentor, but I don't even know how to unpack this anymore. <laughs> so I think when people think of, when people hear the word mentor, sometimes we think that it's more formal than what it has to be. And what I mean by that is, um, is you can, you can find someone who you, you appreciate and you can listen to them over and over and over again and take lessons without ever having a formal relationship with them. Or you could recognize that someone has an incredible amount to teach you and you can, you can be intentional about writing down a few questions and asking them. So I've had, I've had that. And then I've had formal mentors and probably in my early career, my first mentor was a judge and 
he may still be on the bench in Columbus, Ohio. And I started volunteering on his campaign when I was a high school student. And then when I went in college, he was very intentional to make sure that he periodically checked in on me. And when I would come home for breaks, I would always make it a point to stop by the courthouse just to check in. In fact, when I was looking for my first job, uh, he said, go and get anything. And I said, no, I want to work in this kind of job. And we kind of argued about that. Uh, And then when I worked for this particular organization, I realized that there was a woman who was a vice president at the time, and I realized that she just had a a lot of advice, and she was approachable. I don't know that at that time I would have said she's my mentor, but at that time I said she's well-positioned in the organization. She's been with the organization for a long time. I can learn from her, So when I and, and I trust her. So when I have questions, I'm going to go to her and I'm going to ask her. I trust her to maintain my confidence. I trust her to give me good advice. Again, I don't think that at that time I would have said she's my mentor, but um, I was receiving something from her. Right now, I listen to uh, the Dave Ramsey show. I listen to Dave Ramsey maybe five days out of seven days. Dave, his his politics are very, very conservative. So he and I don't see eye to eye politically. I'm on the liberal end and he's very, very conservative. But what he's done in terms of teaching people how to get out of debt and also just how he promotes his brand and his company, for me, there's a lot of insight there. And so I pay attention to that. I'm able to put aside his political leanings and think about, okay, well, what can this man teach me? So I listen to him every day. I may never meet the guy. Um, In fact, when I published my book, I sent him copies of my book and I said, hey, you know, who knows? Um, I may never meet him, but there's something that I can gain from him. I also have a situation where I'm pretty involved in uh, the alumni association at my university. And I was invited to speak for a diversity conference at the university, I think in 2016. And through that speaking engagement, I met one of the board of trustees. And um, he and I began, whenever he came to DC for work, I would ask him, can I get on your schedule and just have dinner with you? Or can I get on your schedule and just have coffee? And then I would ask him different questions. And so in some ways, he's a mentor. Now, he may not call himself a mentor, but if I have a question about something that falls in his purview based on his career experience, I'll call him up and I'll ask. So for me, it's happened in a more formalized setting. It's also happened in a less formal setting where maybe the person wouldn't say we're in a mentor-mentee relationship. The other thing that I think is really important is executive coaching. A lot of times, We have to be, not a lot of times, all the time, we have to be the captain of our career. And that means we have to be very in tune with what we need and then be able to ask for it. So I I ask for executive coaching. The needs may be different depending on where I am in my career or, or the organization that I'm working for. But, uh, when I, years ago, I worked for a labor union and, um, my boss gave me some feedback and he basically said, Jennifer, you have recognition outside of the organization, but your gravitas internally is not what I would like to see. And he suggested an executive coach. And I worked with this executive coach for maybe two years. She was phenomenal. Um, Probably the best executive coach that I've ever had. And while we were in a coaching relationship, I kind of considered her a mentor because I was learning from her. That was a really long answer to your question, but hopefully it helped. (laughs) I think there are so many important nuggets. And as you were talking, I was just thinking, thank you. And then you would offer something else really awesome and practical. And I was thinking, thank you again. (laughs) 
I mean, you just provided so many different ideas and and kind of ways to think about mentorship and and how it can sort of practically be applied. And then I also think and and maybe sort of self-servingly because I I support people not as an executive coach but more with their health and lifestyle sort of not being in alignment with their personal and professional goals. I want to thank you for sharing that you worked with an executive coach because there are so many times I've heard people, my clients in particular, usually in the first session or two, like kind of feeling like having a coach is punishment mode. And I think even even executive coaching like it's it's out there more than it used to be, I think, and I think it's getting uh, like people are starting to have a better understanding of it. But it used to be like it was like if you got sent to an executive coach, it was like one step away from being sent to HR, right? <laughs> and and I've heard that. I mean, at the time that I was getting at the time that I had an executive coach, it wasn't talked about that way. But but certainly over the last ten years, I've heard that repeatedly. And I would say, regardless of the intention of your supervisor or your manager when they assign a coach, there's still something valuable that can be taken away from the coaching experience. And so even if I were in a situation where someone said, you are not meeting or you are not proficient in this area and we're going to assign a coach, to the extent that I can put the hurt feelings or the ego aside, there's still something that that person can give me that may serve me well in the position that I'm in or in a future position. And so part of it is just our orientation and how we think about it. And I realize as I'm saying this, that a lot of this is easier said than done. And sometimes it takes someone who is not in the situation to say, well, forget the intention of the person who assigned the the coach. What can you gain from it? And how will it make you better? Yes. I, th- I think I love, I, I hear this like overriding theme in what you're saying of like coming back to these really fundamental questions of what is the lesson in this for me? What right. can I learn here? And what can I extract from this situation? Absolutely. Because regardless of how great we are, we're not great in every area and we can always be greater. So, so there's always from the people that we meet, from the experiences that we have, there's always a lesson to be learned. Absolutely. And I think what's also interesting here, from my perspective anyways, is whether it is coming from a a colleague at work, whether it is coming from a superior at work, whether it is coming from a mentor, or even whether it's coming from a coach, this notion of getting that information as feedback, being able to step aside from the ego and the hurt and the frustration and the like, I'm not enough and what's wrong with me? I'm broken. I'm not complete in some way. But like recognizing like all of that is, as my coach would say, because I've hired coaches along the way and a business coach that I worked with recently said, you can't always see the, the picture if you are the frame. Wow. <laughs> I like that. I like that. But it's interesting as you were talking, it was like we can get that kind of feedback from different places. But sometimes it's like, you know, coworkers are like, you're not good at this, but we don't know how to help you fix it. 
And that's where you can look to a coach or or a mentor that has that particular skill set and kind of move there. Right. Definitely. Thank you for sharing all of that. I don't know why the stigma is there for people. I mean, it's still like to this day, and I, I, I think you're right, it has gotten significantly better. But I mean, I remember back in my PricewaterhouseCoopers days and being in the world of finance, if you got a coach, that was like, you were one foot out the door at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Jennifer, I, f- I feel like I still have so many questions. Like as your story <laughs> unfolds, I have even more questions than I had originally thought of just by stalking you online. <laughs> and by stalking, I mean in the most loving way. <laughs> uh, of course, I understand. <laughs> I guess you have to stalk people online in your business too. I do. Yeah, I do. <laughs> I yeah. could probably learn from you. <laughs> yeah. Get them to call me back or respond to an email. So, Oh my goodness. I can't even imagine having to persuade people or set up the trail of breadcrumbs for people to be able to get back to you all the time and, and be responsive. Right. <laughs> but I want to ask you, I know you touched on your book, I mean, you, you're actually a published author now, too, and you wrote a book. Let me see if I get the title right. Extraordinary PR, Ordinary Budget. You got it. Cool. And I read it. I'm terrible about remembering book titles. That's, I don't know what it is. I always forget the, the extra pieces, too, but I, I fumble. I think it's, I'm starting <laughs> to have senior moments at an earlier age. <laughs> And also, it's funny because when you were talking about mentorship, it made me think, I never actually thought of it this way, but it it came to me while you were talking, like books as mentorship. Like you were talking about how like maybe it's not a formal mentorship, but you're just asking questions. Absolutely. And I have a bad habit of not when it's a library book, but when it's something I buy, literally writing all over the book, like I've been trying to use post-its more so that, like, if I can give the book away to someone else or my husband wants to read it, that it's not just covered. But, like, there's so many times where it's just, like, questions in the margin. Like, I'm having this, like, conversation with a book. It <laughs> That probably makes me sound crazier, but I think mentorship <laughs> can. But anyways, the book. So I'm hearing the work that you're doing for Pico. I know you're doing some of your own work through Spotlight PR. Yes. And then you've written a book and you're a mom. Yes. So I know you have this really balancing morning routine too, but I guess one of the questions I hear, especially when women are balancing all these different spheres, how do you set priorities for yourself? So the way that I set priorities is... I think about what it is that I want to do. And when I was writing Extraordinary PR, Ordinary Budget, I actually started writing the book. And and the book was birthed through a period of intense personal turmoil in my life, um, where I had a number of relationships that were just in crisis. And so the book was therapeutic. I started writing the book I had said for many years, I'm going to write a book. I mean, I think I had been saying that for 10 years and it was just, well, what will I write about? When I finally started writing the book, I wrote the book in 2014. And 
when I wrote the book, I started writing in July and by December of that year, I had a rough draft. You know, I had the the outline of, I, I basically had the manuscript, most of the manuscript. And the way that I prioritized the book during that point and, and really why I started writing it when I did was I was thinking, okay, with all of the unpleasant things that are going on in my life, how will I save myself? How will I prevent myself from going into this downward spiral of depression and staying there? And I said, well, I need to take the focus off of myself and put it on something else. And so I said, well, I can write. And I thought, well, I can't write about what I'm going through because it's too personal and it's too fresh. So I said, well, maybe I can write about what I like. And I really like what I do. And so that's how I started writing the book. After I wrote the book, I sent it to a friend and the friend suggested the the publisher that ended up publishing my book. So I send it to this uh, this editor friend of mine. She she gives me the name of a publisher. I send it to the publisher. December of that year. So I start writing in July. December of that year, I had the first conversation with the editor of the publishing house that would eventually publish my book. And the editor said, "You're clearly an expert in public relations, but no one knows who you are." So if you want to publish this book, you need to focus on building a platform. Because I knew I wanted to publish the book, I didn't want the writing time and the writing itself to, to go to waste. That became my priority, building my platform. So at the start of, uh, this had to be 2015, I wrote a personal strategic plan for myself. And the personal strategic plan was basically, how do I build a platform? And I, I put all the things that I thought I would have to do to increase my visibility. So that included things like, well, you need to tweet more. Um, you need to do some public speaking. Perhaps you need to teach a course at the college level. That way you'll meet students who might potentially buy your book. And so I made a list of all the things that I felt I needed to do. And then I also put deadlines by when those things needed to be done. And that's how I prioritized 2015. So it was all about, you know, how do I get to the end goal, what I thought was the end goal? <laughs> At that time, I wasn't thinking about the promoting of the book, but how do I get to the end goal? <laughs> and then because, because I am trained to think in terms of deadlines in order to make it real, I attach different deadlines, and that's how I prioritize my time. Right now, um, what I've learned about myself over the course of my career is that I have to be fulfilled in the personal as well as the professional realm. And so uh, there's a great book and it's about labor organizing. It's called Not for Bread Alone. In the book, the, the author talks about the importance of giving workers bread, which I interpret to be they're meeting their material needs and roses. And I interpret roses to mean meeting what they giving them what they like. So you're giving them the financial means to take care of themselves. And you're also giving them the roses. So something that feeds the spirit. And that's how I think of my personal versus professional life. And so regardless of what I have going on at work, I think about well, what's going to make me happy personally, and then I plan my time around that. The other thing that I've learned in terms of like prioritizing time is to work at times that are optimal for me. So I do my best thinking in the morning. And so I was saying earlier, if I wake up and I have a great idea for an article, I may start writing it then. Or if something happens on the weekend and it really, really makes me upset and I can't stop thinking about it, sometimes I'll just write my thoughts about that issue. And once I get it out, I will feel a little bit better. 
I pay attention to my energy and I tend to exert the greatest energy during times that work for me physically. So I'm a morning person. And so a lot of times I get my best ideas in the morning. I love this. We are so kindred spirits in terms of this. And just kind of recognizing your own rhythms. Like I'm laughing because you're like, I'm a morning person and I'm, I wake up at seven usually, sometimes a little earlier, sometimes a few minutes later, but roughly I've, I've reached an age in my life where I kind of automatically wake up at seven, no matter what time I went to bed, which is, I'm like, oh my God, I'm turning into my mom. (laughs) But I'm laughing because I'm like, I, a, a handful of years ago, and, you know, obviously it's not perfect and there are definitely some exceptions, but for the most part, you need to be like a rock star or Jesus Christ himself to get me to take a meeting or a phone call right. with you before 10 a.m. Like pretty much I need that time in the morning to just take care of myself and get up and have some foundational things and make sure my mindset is ready for everything that I'm I'm going to take on yep. that day, be ready for client sessions and feel prepared and, you know, just recognizing like, nope, giving up that time before 10 a.m. is just not going to serve me well for the rest of the day and just really owning that and communicating it kindly to other people. Absolutely. So even though I am up early every morning, I do not take calls before 7 a.m. normally. Every once in a while there might be a crisis and I, I'll need to call someone very early. But normally I don't, I don't make phone calls at that time. I don't, I don't make and I don't accept. And so um, my sister is also an early riser and sometimes she will call me. She'll try to call in, in that window that's like me. And I, I just decided <laughs> that, you know what, I'm not going to answer. And then I call her back and I remind her that the best time to reach me is after this time. And she says, oh, okay, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a sister, so it's kind of like, yeah, I hear you, but I might ignore it anyway. Yeah, and even though she's my sister, I still try to, because I know that that time is special, I still try to preserve it. Now, if, if I see her yes. calling twice in a row, then I'll say, okay, well, there is a problem, and then I might answer it. But that, that almost never happens. Good for you. Do you find you get pushback sometimes for yeah. kind of keeping that boundary? Yes. What if you know? What have you found to be effective to help? A lot of times, I get pushback if I'm new in a situation, so I'm in a new work environment and people don't know me as well. But what I found to be effective is explaining to to my support staff or my support team the rationale behind my thinking. I'm doing this because of X, Y, and Z. And then I will ask them, you know, this is important to me. This is how I work. I need your help. And then people feel like, oh, my gosh, I have an opportunity to help Kara. Or, oh, my God, you know, Jennifer is asking me for help. I want to help her. A lot of times they will, they'll want to do it. And then sometimes I remember that, okay, this is a priority to me. But it may not be a priority to everyone else on the team. So periodically I may have to give them reminders. So, for instance, There was a time when I did not do external meetings on Mondays. You know, at my prior job, I just refused to take external meetings on Mondays. Mondays were my day to meet with my team, to plan for the week. And if it was someone who did not work for my organization, I would not meet with them on Mondays. Now, um, 
And then I would just explain that to, you know, to the support staff. And then eventually they said, okay, Jennifer doesn't do Monday meetings. And I understand she's explained to me why she does it. And I understand in my current job, the, the workflow is a little bit different. And so I am able to do that. My team is also not as big, so I don't have to, um, I'm able to, to take some meetings on Mondays, but what I, what I do right now is I insist that I won't take, like, I won't do more than four meetings a day. Uh, or I'll put work blocks on my schedule. Nice. And I tell my, you know, um, assistant, so this is my work block and this can't be interrupted. Or if someone wants to add more than four meetings, she'll come to me and say, uh, so-and-so wants to meet with you. Your schedule is pretty tight. What do you want me to do? Should I reschedule it for this day or should I put them on this day? Yes, let's put them on this way, this day. Or what do they need? Well, they need X, Y, and Z. Okay, well, maybe they can meet with someone else on the team. Maybe it doesn't have to be me. Wow. I like your style. I really dig this. And sometimes just giving myself permission to say, you know what, Jennifer, you know what works for you. And and that's okay. It's okay for you to articulate what works for you, even if it feels uncomfortable when you're doing it. Yes. (laughs) And you can also, this is something I've been speaking or asked to speak about a lot lately, so in my my past life in finance, a, a lot of my work was because I was mostly working for debtor clients in trouble debt restructuring or bankruptcy cases. So that was where I got my start and then later kind of became a controller for startups, which was a slightly more humane way of doing similar work. But negotiation has always been a big part of things. And I've realized a lot of what's going on, especially for women is not that they're not trying to negotiate and not that they're not negotiating, but there's still so much like guilt and heaviness, yes. especially when we have to say no. So I started, I started, I've been offering a talk and, and it's been happening around negotiating. What is it? Negotiating your way to no and then without feeling like a jerk. In yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but recognizing you can communicate a no And there's like, you can use your tone, you can use your body language, you can use it as an opportunity to educate where that no is coming from. And then also what you were describing, what does this person really need? Because they're asking to talk to me, but really they might need to talk to Billy, Bobby, or Susie on the team, right? Right. Right. Yeah, definitely. Negotiating, though, I like that. (laughs) It is. Almost everything we do is a negotiation. I don't know why people get so uncomfortable with that word. And I I think I'm trying to like peel back some of the stigma and fear around that. I think part of it is because a lot of us, we've been trained to please people and we've been trained to put the needs of others ahead of our own. And so when we step outside of that, it feels uncomfortable until we start doing it enough. I mean, I even heard someone say that that they are practicing saying no without an explanation. And they're they're practicing it with the hope that they can do it more. Which is such it like feels like such a ninja like yeah. move, right? Like it feels like ninja level stuff. Like you're just gonna say no <laughs> right. and look someone in the face and sit in that uncomfortable like right. five seconds of silence. Right, 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 <laughs> definitely. Amazing. And I I have to ask, like, it sounds like you've done a lot of work around being 
organized and being aware and being articulate about personal boundaries and managing energy. Did you have to learn that lesson the hard way? Or was that something that's always kind of been in you? I think I had to learn it the hard way. I am naturally a a self-reflective person. And when something doesn't work out, I'll reflect and say, okay, well, why did that happen? But what I learned is I was going so hard, you know, and I was uh, putting in 12-hour days repeatedly, not just like one day a week, but repeatedly. And I was unpleasant to be around. My expectation, because I was working 12-hour days, I silently expected that everyone around me would make a similar choice and I would get upset with them when they weren't. And uh, I was, I basically had unrealistic expectations for myself and then pushed those unrealistic expectations onto my team. I mean, I was probably even somewhat aggressive with my, um, with my boss in terms of thinking, sending early morning text messages and expecting a response, you know, like right away. And I got to the point where I was really tired. I was, uh, I was not happy and it's like, okay, well, how do I, how do I change things? You know, at my last job advancement project, I think it took two years for me to take a genuine vacation and I shouldn't even call it genuine. I was just so burned out that I had to stop. Like I had to push the reset button. And so I discovered as part of that process, I also went to a training uh, called Rockwood and Rockwood is a leadership development institute and training program. But at that training, we spent a lot of time focused on personal ecology. And that really helped me to think through how is my day structured? You know, how many meetings am I taking a day? How do I feel at the end of the day when I've had seven meetings? How am I showing up for people? You know, am I in a place where I'm snapping at people? And if I'm snapping at them, why am I snapping? And I discovered that I was just I was physically tired and that um, that that pace was not going to serve me well. It wasn't going to serve the organization well over the long term. And the other thing that I learned is no one is going to come in and say, Jennifer, you're working too hard. You know, Jennifer, you need to take care of yourself. <laughs> like as long as I keep giving, people are going to keep accepting. <laughs> and then I'm yes. frustrated. You know, they're 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 getting what they want and they're getting what they want consistently and on time. And I just said, okay, I've got to stop this. And I have to be my own advocate. I have to say, like, I have to, I'm the only one that really knows what I need. And I have to be willing to say it. So I wish I could say that this is just how I'm wired. But this comes as a result of making many mistakes. And of, you know, getting to point to a point where I was really, really tired, really, really burned out, and not really using my gift and bringing my full self, a healthy self to my work. Wow. Thank you for sharing this. And, you know, I don't know if you know this about my story. I mean, it's, it's out there, but I hit that same wall where I had let the stress and the burnout and the exhaustion and just the hours and the travel and all of that build and build and build and build to the point where I literally was like losing good control of my bowels. And, you know, I had a couple of accidents in public, like quite literally like on a plane and I got locked out of my office one night and my stomach was a wreck and I was, you know nervous and exhausted and tired and not feeding myself good stuff and not sleeping. 
So I can completely relate with what you're talking about in, in terms of just hitting the, the figurative wall. Right. What was the moment for you when you recognized you had to get in the driver's seat of your car? It was in 2014. And I feel like when, when we're supposed to learn something, everyone in our life or many people in our lives keep bringing that lesson. And so one particular moment when I realized that I had to get in the driver's seat is I felt that I was not, I felt that my team was afraid of me. And something just told me to ask them, like I would be up, like this was my, my schedule. I, I would wake up at four. I would work for two hours. I would make my son breakfast, take him to school. And then I would go into the work into work. I would work maybe until five or six. I would come home, hang out with my son for a little bit, then jump back on the computer. And, uh, something said because of how you're working, your team expects that they should work. And I remember I was in a staff meeting and I asked them, by the way, do you all feel that you need to work as much or more than me? And, uh, and they said yes. And they kind of sheepishly said yes. So there was some intimidation there too. So that was a sign. And then, um, my son, he, one day he started creating, I'll call them memes, but he took a picture and then he would make notes and he, and like one picture was, this is how you know it's serious. Another picture was mom is in work mode. And then he said, you know, do you have time to talk to me? And I thought, (laughs) I mean, I felt terrible because I said, okay, so I'm living in the same house. And even on the days that I work from home, I'm not interacting with my kid because I'm working. And his image of me is me on a computer or me on the phone talking to someone. And so that made me feel really, really bad. And then I think, you know, the other, the other kind of sign that I had to do something is I was having migraines three to four days of a week. So I could not get through a day without taking migraine medication. And I was going to my neurologist more than I ever had And I remember going to my neurologist one day and he said, Jennifer, how much are you sleeping? And I said, oh, I don't sleep well at all. (laughs) And I said, oh, I probably sleep three or four hours a night. And, you know, I'm working the rest of the time. And I kind of looked at him like, yeah, no, I don't sleep. And he said, well, your migraines are connected in part to the fact that you're not sleeping. And I said, really? (laughs) And that was kind of a light bulb moment. And I think all of those things were happening at the same time. And I said, okay, well, you know, I've got to change. I've, I've got to change for myself. I have to change for my son. I have to change for my team. And because I'm hardwired to, to work really hard, this is a lesson that I have to constantly remind myself. Well, Jennifer, you're, you're a little bit grumpy today. Why is that? And maybe you need to recalibrate. Or um, maybe tomorrow, instead of doing four meetings, maybe you need to do two meetings and use the rest of the time to write, or maybe you need to leave early, or maybe you need to take a vacation. <laughs> wow, I like, dig this. Yeah, and all of this feels like what I'm doing. It's like, wow, this is an act of resistance. <laughs> it is a hundred percent an act of resistance, and I I think that's why it's so challenging. I for women to just recognize, like, I know there's all these like memes that like self-care is not selfish. Right. You know, and sometimes I feel like I'm like, yeah, that's true. But we need to really talk about like 
why are people feeling like it's selfish in the first place? Like what's going on in the macro level? Like what's driving that? Yeah. And then sometimes it's also challenging people. And I remember I was on a conference call not too long ago with a bunch of staff and my boss was on the line and he said, you know, everyone needs to practice self-care. And I said, you know what? I'm sorry, but self-care, let me tell you what that looks like. And let me tell you why it's difficult to achieve. And I basically, I told the truth. And at that point I was, I was a little frustrated. And so I, I spoke truthfully. I spoke forcefully. I was also respectful. And he called me after the conference call and he said, Jennifer, I just want you to know that I hear you. And what I was saying before he didn't hear. So I had to say it in a way that he could hear. And he said, I want you to know that I hear you. What can I do? And I gave him a recommendation and um, he met that recommendation. So sometimes self, when, when people throw the self-care label around, sometimes you have to call them on it because it's easy, yeah. to say, but, but in order for me to have self-care, like if you are, you and I are in a working relationship or professional relationship, there's a part that you need to play too, especially if you're in a position of power or you're in a position of authority. So sometimes it's pushing back and it's challenging. It's challenging others. And recognizing that it's not perfect, right? Like that it's a process. Like there's this awareness, like I I can only picture and I feel like I'm feeling it on more of a visceral level than actually even like envisioning what it was. But like you standing in front of your staff and saying, do you think my expectations are what you need to hold yourself to? I can't imagine how uncomfortable it was to hear that feedback in that moment and kind of just feel like, oh my God, what have I been contributing to the world right here? Yeah, I felt really bad. And then, yeah, and then this moment with your son, I'm I'm so thankful that that you're sharing this and what it really looks like because I I feel like these are the ways that we as women are going to start hearing it and seeing it and understanding it more than just like a pretty little pin that says like self-care is not selfish or like these trite little things. Yeah. But like really recognizing like you have to aware you have to be aware of what's going on and understand it, then you have to show grace. And I feel like that's something in about 50 different ways in our conversation today you just you kind of ooze grace. <laughs> you know, whether it's under pressure. But I, I I feel like I would love to watch you in action for a week because I feel like there would be a lot of that and a lot more that we could learn from. Thank you. And, and there'll be moments where it's like, you know what, I blew that. I'm going to try to fix yeah. that tomorrow or next time I'm going to do it completely differently. <laughs> but recognizing that, like having that self-awareness to be like, yeah, that didn't go like I wanted it. Whether it's a conversation or whether... I mean, I'm sure in you even just figuring out migraines, there were a lot of like fits and starts and move left and move right. And maybe you get a step forward at the same time and it's sort of sideways and maybe you had to do a somersault to get there. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you for sharing this. Thank you. You are very welcome. (laughs) I I think this is going to be so important for women listening to hear because they hear me blab about it you know whether it's in social media or things like that and I mean I try to be honest 
and I could probably do a better job about like where I'm struggling or where I needed to reset, right? Like we all have those moments. I know the month of October and I, I think we probably share a common um, tendency to be workaholics if unchecked. Right, <laughs> right. <That's a> <laughs> I'm sensing that we 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 probably we probably drink the same poison. Yes, but, <laughs> yeah. But I think you know, recognizing that it's also kind of adapting. Like you've had different roles, you've had to re-engineer or re-establish different boundaries for yourself, and it's. It's not always pretty. Like, I know, like, my October was a bust. Right. Like, I just overworked, and I felt great because I got a lot of those projects that had just been kind of sitting three-quarters done or half done or not started. Like, I made all this progress, but, like, by November and right before the holidays was kind of feeling like, ugh. Yeah. You know, I was wiped. And, you know, at that point, literally – just started like I need to reorganize my day differently this isn't working and I kind of went to books and old notebooks and ideas and thought about what I've learned from clients in eight years and what they've tried and worked and I was like yeah I need to reboot and so like my days to manage my energy look different now like I'm only allowing myself to work a 90 minute block and sometimes that timer goes off and I'm like, well, I just need 10 minutes. Yeah. And, you know, maybe I'll finish the email or finish the paragraph or, you know, finish uploading a file or whatever that kind of thing is. But then I've been forcing myself that I have to take at least 15 to 30 minutes off and do something playful. That is great. I mean, that, that is such a great model and it's realistic for, for most of us. And then when you take that break and allowing your brain to just like shut down momentarily, <laughs> that has to be so good for, for the creative process. Yeah. Cause you stop, you get off the hamster wheel, right? Like you're not still like fixating on that same paragraph or that same email or that same thing you need to write or, you know, whatever it, the interview questions, like it it just has been making everything move easier, but like it also feels weird. And I know that I had I, I'm doing a bad job at it still, like in its implementation. Like I know where I want to go, but it's like I also because of what I do know it's an incremental process. Like okay, I overworked by 17 minutes on that 90 minute block. You know I, I've honestly been using showers as a crutch like my first block is for <laughs> is before my first shower so I like yeah okay I right. know I'm gonna ha- I'm not gonna be able to do work or cheat on that break right. if I'm in the shower right <laughs> but we have to do these things sometimes right we do I mean it's it's so important and then you feel better you do and and you can like your life like I think sometimes and what I see, again, in my world, like, I live in this bubble of, like, I, I'm going to die with everybody's secrets and complaints. Like, I'm going to go to my grave really bloated with everyone's, <laughs> like, <laughs> dirty secrets and, and complaints. Um, but we we just have to, we have to recognize that it's not a perfect process. And I think I love this conversation with you today because... It seems like you have so much ease and grace 
that you've managed to cultivate out of like all of these challenges? That is true. But there are also like, I'm still human, you know, so my October, it was, it was terrible. Um, <laughs> it was in the ether, right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> what was out like, there? What is going on? But you know, my mom got really sick, so I ended up spending most of my time in Ohio. And, and you know what it's like to travel and not be in your own space. And then when you're dealing with a parent who's ill and the emotional stuff, that adds another layer of complexity. And I yes. see, so initially I felt like, oh my gosh, everything is turning upside down. And I canceled all of my events. There was one event that I kept and that was like the end of October. And I said, okay, maybe by then I'll be better. But, um, but I canceled everything. And at first I felt just extreme anxiety about needing to cancel. But then I thought, okay, I cannot show up well for anything right now because I am in a personal crisis. So is it, do I force myself to do it and then not show up well? Or do I acknowledge that I need to take care of personal things first and that this is, this is not a pattern. This is something that's happened. And I chose to just say, look, I've got to take care of, um, I've got to take care of my family and I ha and all this stuff I have to put on the back burner. And I felt like wow. that was the best, that was the best decision that I could have made at the time. And I was talking to, um, to my boss who's really, really supportive. Um, and I said, you know, look, I've had to cancel everything. And he said, well, um, he said, well, that's okay. It'll come back. And uh, just like hearing that reassuring feedback was, was really helpful. And fortunately for me, I've been, in, I've been in some work situations where I've had um, bosses who were not very supportive. But in most cases, I've had really amazing people who I was reporting to. And that's been great. But just hearing that, that's okay. It'll come back. It was like the extra bit of reassurance that I needed. And I think I want to call attention to, to anyone listening. Like, I think the other thing that's really important, the unfounded, unrealized, anticipatory stress yes. that we can <laughs> generate and yes. whirl up that is that of a shitstorm yes. of epic proportions. Yes. yes, 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 yes. And then the relief you must have felt when you, like, got through those, like, handful of emails or phone calls to be like, this is what's going on with me. Yes. This is too much right now. <laughs> yeah. You had to feel like, I mean, not a million bucks because your mom was sick and you were having to go deal with that. But like you had to feel like at least a good 750 grand at that point because that you had taken that action. I did. And I remember, like you said, it's like we build up all this. We have all this built up anxiety based on how we think people will respond. And, and we think, OK, am I doing the right thing? And I remember calling up one of my best friends and I said, look, you know, I'm supposed to be in Rochester this weekend. I'm supposed to be in Ohio this weekend. I'm supposed to go here. Like, I think I had three trips planned plus events in D.C. And I said, I, I said, I think I have to cancel some of this stuff. And my friend said, absolutely, Jennifer, you need to focus on your mom. <laughs> and she's like, yeah, of course. <laughs> and so I said, OK, so I'm not, you know, so I'm not thinking about this the wrong way. She's like, no. And like you said, when I reached out to to various folks to say, look, this is not like I actually had a, a book signing in Rochester. And when I reached out to different folks, they almost everyone to a person said, I am so sorry for what you're going through. This must be incredibly hard. 
let's reconnect when you're able, you know? And so I thought, okay, this was not that hard. And then being able to, to be in Ohio and to focus on that versus the back and forth traveling, it was just the right decision at that time. Oh, so happy you shared that, that the anticipatory stress did not correlate with with the actual outcome. Because I I think we forget. And I, I wish I could remind anyone and everyone listening, if they are in a moment like that, it's like, just step back, just take a breath. Right. And no one wants to see your frazzled self show up at anything. (laughs) Right. It's just like it. And maybe this is how I rationalize it as a former workaholic who's always kind of in, in recovery in some way. I always try to tell myself like, do you really want to bring that energy into a room of other people? And especially if I'm doing like a a speaking event or an event with women, it's like, do I really want to take that gross, frazzly, awful energy? And do I actually want to come in contact with other like women with that energy? Yeah. Like that would be like me walking in the room being like, here's the flu for you. Here's the flu for you. Like it feels equally as gross to me. Yeah. And, you know, um, sometimes I think we underestimate, like, how much time we actually need. So I, I remember, and then sometimes I think we put expectations on ourselves that other people don't have. So I, I went to Ohio. Like I said, my mom got sick. I stayed there for, for over two weeks. I came back, and then I just told myself I had a pretty important meeting with our senior leadership team. And so I just said, well, I can't be the one person who doesn't show up. So I'm going to go into the office for the, for the meeting. I remember walking into the office and my boss said, wow, I'm really surprised to see you. And in my head, I was just thinking, no, I have to be there. And my boss said, how are you doing? And I just broke down crying and I probably cried for maybe 15 minutes. I appreciate that he made space for me to just cry. But then I also was thinking, wow, no one expected me to be here, but me. (laughs) (laughs) so yeah and you're thinking like I guess I could have just stayed home in my jammies cried felt all the feels and like avoided that whole scene yeah I was like you could have stayed home and yeah oh Jennifer I I so appreciate your honesty and and for showing up to Le Vital Core Salon and willing to to be real. Like I always I always tell my guests and and you know this, like it's a pedestal free zone because I I think just hearing the the real how are we as women getting by. Yeah. Uh is so damn important. And I I wanted to to switch gears a little bit because there are some questions now that we've gotten a chance to know you and know your perspective on things and uh, more about where you come from. I want to ask about being a modern woman because I think this is a quilt I am sonically trying to put together. And I I, I don't even know where it's going yet, but I, I just find myself really pulled to ask these questions. And I definitely want to hear the answers from you. So I want to start with how would you define being a modern woman? I think a modern woman lives without feeling like she has to meet imposed expectations. 
I think a modern woman is very clear on what she wants, on what she needs, and has the courage to go out and to get that. I think a modern woman is also someone who says, you know what, just because this practice or this habit or this way of being worked for my mother or my aunts or my grandmother, that doesn't mean that I have to adopt it as my own. It worked for them and I am free to create what works for me. I'm so glad you used the word free because as you were talking, I was like, freedom, freedom. This sounds like freedom. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And so I want to get your perspective from two different directions. So what would you like to see modern women give more of a shit about? I think I would like to see modern women spend more time focused on being in relationship and mentoring other women. And when I say that, I think that, um, so, so I'm based in Washington and it's a high stress environment. You know, everyone is so busy and everyone is, is working to achieve the next thing. And while that's great, I'm not sure how much space it creates to really invest in other people. And so, you know, there are tons of women who I interact with and I think, wow, she's really dynamic. I'd like to spend time with her. But I think we have to make, we have to create space in our schedules to make that happen. And when I think about like management and uh, the women who, who are on my team, I feel like part of my responsibility is to give them something, to give them something that's going to help, help them along in their career. And like, I want them to look at me like one of the highest compliments that I can get as a manager is she's my mentor. I want my team to not just see me as a boss, but to see me as a coach. I hired a woman in 2015 and um, she referred to me. I heard her tell someone that, you know, I was a great mentor and inwardly, like I wanted to cry because I just felt like, wow, (laughs) you know, I've done, you know, I did that right because that's how she sees me. And I really appreciate when women on my team come to me and ask questions that aren't work related because I feel like, okay, I'm creating that space. And I, I just want us to be more intentional in doing that, not just with the women who are in the workplace, but also with, um, with women who maybe haven't even entered the workplace just yet. I think that women are, are brilliant and it'd be great if we can be more intentional about giving of ourselves to younger generations of women and also thinking about what we can learn from them. So it doesn't have to be a one way, one way street. Yes. Yes. What would you like to see modern women give less of a shit about? I sometimes feel like we still place a lot of emphasis on appearance, physical appearance, um, what we're wearing, how, you know, how we are groomed before we go out. I would like to care less about that and more about, okay, well, what's the substance behind the mascara or behind the foundation or behind, you know, the pricey wardrobe? Where's the substance behind all of that? Got it. I agree. Or um, as I'm listening, I'm like, or the lack of mascara. Like I, I gave up wearing a lot of makeup. I, you know, I'll wear a little bit, maybe mascara and lipstick from time to time. But for the most part, I was realizing like every time I put it on, I just was thinking, oh, I'm going to have to take this off when I'm like tired and just want to be comfy and headed to bed later. Yeah. Yeah. 
but so important. And Jennifer, I know we have talked about so many different things. What do you most want Levital Core Salon listeners to know? I want you to know that um, that you really can create the life that that you imagine for yourself. It may not all happen at once. There may be different seasons, but you really can you really can do it. And I think the trick the trick is to start somewhere to to start where you are, and it may not be perfect. I sometimes, I want everything and I want it now. And I sometimes have to remind myself. (laughs) Now or yesterday. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I have to remind myself, okay, things take time and that's okay. The the point is, okay, what are you doing today to help ensure that you have the kind of tomorrow that you you envision? And, And all of that begins with just taking a step. Even if it's a small step, even if you don't know exactly where it's going to lead to, just just starting somewhere. Amazing advice. Amazing thoughts. Thank you so much for all of this, all of this conversation, all of these ideas. I think there's so many things that that I hope, and I'm sure you do too, that women can pluck from this conversation. Because I, I know I learned a lot listening and have been scribbling down little notes and things that you said and that stuck with me. Before I let you totally skedaddle on to the rest of your day, if women want to learn more about you and your work, obviously you have the book and I'll make sure that everyone has a link to that in the show notes. But if they want to connect with you, what's the best way for them to do that? So the best way for, um, for folks to connect with me is you can, you can go to my Facebook page and it's facebook.com backslash tips the number four, Extraordinary PR. Um, you can follow me on Twitter, and it's at Farmer, the number eight, J. Um, you could also go to my website, Spotlight on PR. I would love if all your listeners could take a second and go to Facebook and like the page. Awesome. I will make sure that they have all of those ways to find you in the show notes so they can easily click over. And Jennifer, truly, thank you. All right, take care. Hey, everyone, it's Kara again. Before you bound back into your day, I just want to say thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. Please support the guests on this show and tweet at them. Give them a Facebook message. Tell them how much you enjoyed it. There is nothing better than being loved up by total strangers to start someone's year off well. So as if, if you really dug this episode as much as I did, let Jennifer know. Let me know. I always love to hear your feedback, and I'm, I'm open to it. You know, at any point, if you're on the newsletter, and I highly encourage people to be there, you'll know about future podcasts, you'll know about some health and lifestyle motivation, you'll hear some stories, you'll get some questions to kind of think about and guide you and help you live as your best self and live a life that you really dig. 
As always, I want to say thank you to all the people that help make my podcast wonderful. And that is Craig Snyder and his fancy pants production work to make it sound even. Like, you know, when you listen to some podcasts and some people, like the guest is real quiet and you can barely hear it. And then the host is really loud and the levels are all kind of wacky. Craig Snyder makes this sound great in a way that you don't even notice is happening, which I think is so killer. But anyways, I love Craig to bits. He's also my husband and he does one hell of a job on this podcast, wouldn't you say? And I also want to thank Rishi Deer of Elephant Stone and the High Dials for performing Rishi Deer of Elephant Stone's song, which is this theme song, which pumps me up and is usually on like a gym mix and things like that so I can listen to it on the regular because it's actually a song I like. It's not just my theme song. And I am deeply grateful for that and grateful for the help that I have from my wonderful production support and virtual assistant, Darlene Victoria. She is bringing so many hours and so much joy back to my life by making a lot of the processes around this podcast easier and the technology and solutions that I didn't even know existed. So I am just delighted to have her on this team and helping make this podcast come to life. So thank you. I'm feeling extra emo today. And for all of you, again, I hope you have a great finish to 2017 and an awesome, I mean, banging, full color, kick-ass start to 2018. I will see you on the flip side. And in the meantime, don't forget, you deserve a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy. Don't let the bullshit or burnout slow you down.